Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name's Luke Perriton, and I'm a physiotherapist, educator, and researcher in the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University. And today is part two of our chat with Mick Hughes, sports and exercise physiotherapist and exercise physiologist. And in part one, Mick and I spoke about his experiences with translating research evidence to clinicians as a clinician. So if you missed that episode, you should go back now and have a listen to to that first, where Mick talks about his background and motivations for the work that he does. And in part two, we're going to chat about Mick's favorite topic, ACL injuries and ACL rehabilitation. So it'll be right in his wheelhouse. Mick Hughes, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me back, Luke. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Always talking shop with you, mate. So thanks once again for having me here. Excellent. Well, let's dive right in. So we've talked in the previous episode, we talked about you know, how you re, you know, how you can use research in clinical practice as a clinician, how you can use your time really effectively, um, and some motivation for young clinicians for getting involved in evidence translation. Um, now I want to dive into your experiences specifically with ACL injuries and working with people who've had an ACL injury and an ACL reconstruction. And we can talk a little bit about how you use research to inform what you do clinically. Yeah. But the backstory first, how did you develop a clinical interest in ACL injuries? And yeah, um, what motivates you to keep going in this area? Yeah, really, really good question. I um, was reflecting on this uh, a, a few weeks ago. Um, I think the original, I, mean, I was exposed to ACL injury management as a new grad um, in my first five years working with rugby league players and, and touch football players in Queensland and, and soccer players in, in New South Wales. But when I moved to Melbourne, I was lucky enough to get a position with the Collingwood Magpies netball team and and quite quickly, I sort of started to understand that look, knee injuries are a huge uh, risk. Yeah, well, they're, they're a, a huge injury incidence and injury prevalence uh, within that sport. And I sort of, I use, I use that to talking to the Australian netball physio and some other people in the area. And I thought, you know, look, we've got a pretty small playing list here and we can't really afford to have an ACL injury. Um, because if one person goes down with an ACL injury, we're now sort of you now d- d- diving into our, our reserves list. And, you know, we, it was one of those interesting, we didn't have the luxury of having just copying an ACL injury. So I, I went about as much as I could learning as much as I could about ACL injury prevention, but also to, you know, we also had a player on our books who was rehabbing from an ACL injury from the previous season and the previous club. So we had to get her up quite rapidly to play as soon as possible in our short season. So then once again, also had to do rehab. I had to read a hell of a lot about ACL rehab practice as well, because it was just me and the SNC coach. I didn't have the luxury of two or three other experienced physios. I didn't have the luxury of a big support team of sports scientists, SNC coaches like an AFL club mate. So I was really sort of thrust into you know, the trust of this club and this player. And um, so, yeah, so I got the best of both worlds. I got to really explore the injury prevention side of things and trying to do the best to maximize our chances of not copying one throughout the year. Um, and then also too, I had to learn quite quickly how to really throw high quality, high grade rehab at our, at our athlete to get her back onto court in a, in a timely fashion as well. Now, unfortunately, we actually had a second injury with her, you know, a contralateral injury eight weeks after she returned back to play. So, which was once again, quite humbling for me 
And once again, a big steep learning curve in my own experiences with ACL injury management. And, and once again, for, yeah, um, trying to even get, get better as, as a whole. So that whole first 12 months with the netball team was a massive learning experience where I look back now and think, God, I, I learned a hell of a lot in 12 months. And from that, that experience there, I was then able to learn a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And it really consumed a lot of my my now reading and, and uh, my, the blogs that I write, the injury, you know, injury prevention stuff I share and, and my social media posts and education is really geared around trying to improve rehab practices in our ACL injured patients. And having done all that, I then now think back to when I was one or two years out and, and the, the practices that I did as a new grad were certainly far away from what is now considered best practice. And, to be fair, you know, what I was doing when I was one or two years out, we didn't know much back then, you know, nearly 10 years ago now. You know, 2016, 2017 was a great line in the sand research-wise in terms of knowing more about discharge criteria and second ACL injury rates and all that kind of stuff. So I don't blame myself too much as a one or two year out, but certainly now, now that we know a hell of a lot more, we, we need to be sharing that information quite quickly. And as we touched on the last podcast, you know, there's a, there's a current 10 to 17 year gap between translation of the research produced to being adopted widely and systematically. I, I feel like it's my responsibility now that I've got a bit of a voice out there to share that information as quickly and as rapidly as possible to the, to the new uh, generation of physios getting around. You've got a lot of energy, Mick. It's good. <laughs> We've got two young kids who are, uh, Two young kids that make me uh, try to, well, they keep me yakky, which then, into, <laughs> which has a knock-on effect of uh, trying to be yakky in other aspects of my life as well. So, and I uh, know it's inspirational for other, particularly younger clinicians who are coming through as well and looking to be evidence-based and, and translate and apply research findings and be the best they can be and get the best outcomes for their patients. So, I really like the point there about you when you your approach to when you had a, a big challenge with the Magpies netball team, you said you had to read a lot. Mm. And in the previous episode, you talked about when you had downtime and you thought, well, I don't want to waste this downtime. I'm going to be doing, I'm going to write my blog. Yep. I'm going to do work. So, I mean, there's, there's some role modeling there for young clinicians as well. Tell us about, you mentioned 2016, 2017 is a bit of a watershed for ACL research and and how that informed practice. Can you tell us a bit more about that and maybe a bit of a summary of the state of play of ACL research in 2021 yeah. from your perspective? Yeah, well, there, were, there were a couple of really key papers published in that year that, that I, can, I can really recall um, that certainly made really piqued my interest and sort of started changing the way that I went about uh, managing my ACL patients. So you go back, you know, six or seven years ago and often the ACL injured patient or the ACL reconstructed patient would be They'd meet their surgeon at the nine-month mark or the 12-month mark, most, most commonly 12-month mark, and they would um, yeah, have a Lockman test, have a pivot shift, pivot shift test from the orthopedic surgeon, and if everything was stable, yeah, the surgeon would say, oh, do you feel like you're ready to play this weekend? And, of course, the person would say yes. So they get the handshake, pat on the back, yeah, good on your son, off you go. Um, that was kind of like the state of play up, up until then when it came to return to sport decision-making. And, and we probably intuitively may have known that we could do better, but there was nothing really there to guide our clinical practice. 
um, such as hop testing and strength testing and that kind of stuff. There was a little bit of information sprinkling around, but it probably wasn't as clear cut as what a couple of papers showed in 2016. And one paper in particular showed that if you, um, in a group of athletes, if you didn't pass discharge criteria in strength test and hop test and then an agility test, um, the risk of suffering a graft rupture was four times greater in those athletes that, uh, that failed to meet all of those discharge criteria compared to those that passed all the discharge criteria. So if you pass them, you got a four, four, uh, like four times lesser chance of re-injuring your graft. And that's sort of subsequently been probably a little bit argued. And yeah, some people say, you know, there's some flaws and so yeah there's been some other papers um since then sort of question the whole role of discharge battery testing and limb symmetry index testing and you know there's some certainly some strong limitations there but there was certainly that paper in particular it made sense to me it made sense to me that 12 months and the clinical stability test is probably not the best practice we don't probably know yet quite quite what is the best practice in terms of just discharge testing is it nine months or is it 12 months is it quad strength testing also kinetically is it hop testing uh horizontally is it adding in a vertical hop test is it a biomechanical lab assessment we don't know what are the key critical features but we certainly know now that uh, a clinical examination probably isn't the only thing that should be done um, and that was one thing that sort of came out of that year in particular and then there was also to um time there was a paper that also in 2016 showed that if you came back to sport earlier than nine months, first those that waited beyond nine months, the risk of knee re-injury was far less if you waited um, to at least nine months. And I think that's really important for our non-professional athletes who don't have the luxury of a complete medical team and high performance team and physio team around them 24 seven, like our elite professional athletes will have. Like our elite professional environment they can go back to sport generally between month six, month six and month nine generally and, and do okay. Um, but our non-professional athletes who don't have the luxury of that big support network, I think that's a really key finding there is sometimes time um, plays a huge role. And if, we, if we're advocating for these fast returns back to sport and this bravado of saying, hey, I've got my athlete back in eight months, you know, good on me, pat on the back. It's all well and good in the elite world when there's a bit more cutthroat sort of stuff going on. But in the non-professional world, I don't think there's anything to gain from rushing our non-professionals back earlier. Yeah, for, yeah, earlier than nine months. And even now, that's sort of probably even been questioned a little bit too um, in terms of, you know, yeah, Kate, Kate Webster and Julian Feller just literally published something just last week where those that came back before 12 months first, those that come back after 12 months, the risk isn't any different and you know in some people are we delaying the inevitable <laughs> for a second ACL injury in the future so um, I guess yeah in a nutshell 2016 for me was some, some great research papers there that started to change the way that I practice and and the beauty is as time's gone on we've actually had more papers come come to fruition that have even um, shed more light about return to sport discharge testing and um, when when is it safe for our non-professionals to go back to sport. And I think we'll eventually, we'll, we might find a, an answer, but at the moment there's still a, a lot of unknowns in the ACL world. And that's the beauty of research is there's so much being pushed out every month where as long as you're staying on top of it, I think you're doing the best job for your patients and sleeping well at night.
Mm. And we'll, we'll get to, I'll have a chat to you at the end and get the exact names of all the papers you were thinking of and we'll pop them in the show description for everyone to look up themselves and read. Yeah. So we're talking a bit about rehab and risk of second injury. What about risk of first injury and in terms of prevention? Now, maybe you can't yeah. prevent every injury that's going to happen and there's an aspect of bad luck and inevitability, but yeah. with a team that you'd want to prevent any ACL injury with, say the Magpies, for example, yep. what does it look like in terms of, I guess, not just as a clinician and your opinion and your habits and your what you did, but how you applied research as you did to help the team prevent injuries as best as you could what did you do yeah so the current sort of state of play at the moment particularly with netball we're, we're quite lucky in that the physiotherapist so Anna, uh, Alana Rancliffe who was the head physiotherapist of the uh, the Diamonds at the time a very very well respected sports physiotherapist she'd been putting a lot of years of her own experiences in developing uh, what's called the netball knee program which has now been universally rolled out amongst all netball clubs uh, around Australia. Um, and so that program designed specifically for netballs based on their, their movement patterns, um, it, it was rolled out to the, to the high level athlete. And it's not only just designed for those that were competing in the Suncorp Super Netball League, such as the Collingwood Magpies, the Melbourne Vixens and, and all those other clubs. Was actually designed also too to be modified to to meet the the high school athletes, the junior athletes as well. So it had a huge variety of exercise choices. But that program was a fundamental part of our injury prevention strategies. It, it basically encompassed the first ten minutes of our training session, and and that's kind of like the state of play at the moment. We know these programs that involve jumping and landing and strength work and and hopping and and stability, um, which what you fill with those 10 minutes, as long as it's ticking a few boxes of the things that I just mentioned, the actual specific exercises can be quite modified and varied to suit the day and the athlete as well. But 10 minutes before every training session and every game can reduce your risk of a future ACL injury by at least 50%. Um, and specifically, one paper has shown non-contact injuries in females can be reduced by as much as 66% which is exactly the, the cohort of people I was working with, working with females playing a non-contact sport. They were more likely to hit non-contact injuries such as landing and pivoting and twisting uh, ACL type injuries. So um, I, I really took it upon myself to stick to that evidence base and apply that in a practical way every training session, every game that we did. Of course, we try to modify it every now and again to keep engagement stop it from being boring and mundane. So we'd, we'd make the exercises fun and, and change it up a little bit. Um, and I think that's kind of, that was my approach, but that was also too, that's an approach that we should all be taking if we're working in sport, particularly with our young female and male athletes. And the framework that that is provided in netball can absolutely be provided to a, a group of soccer players. And we know there's also too a wonderful program called the 11 plus that's specifically designed for soccer players to do exactly the same thing. Um, basketball, volleyball, uh, hockey, football, Oztag, uh, AFL, all these other sports have got the capacity to do exactly what netball and soccer have done. I know AFL women's right now, it's very a hot, to hot, hot um, topic is the ACL injuries in AFL women's. And I, I know Latrobe University are doing some research there in trying to roll out their uh, prep to play program, which is very similar to the netball knee and the 11 plus as well. So um, 
there's a lot that can be done to prevent those first injuries. It's just trying to weave it in to the to the players training environment I guess is the big challenge as clinicians because a lot of coaches will just want to turn up and get the job done and it's like okay how can you get that 10 minutes into the player's schedule to give them the effective treatment dose um, and that's the the beauty of um, yeah being creative and uh, thinking outside the square and trying to find ways through the week to get the job done too. Yeah you um, you mentioned before professors Julian Feller and Kate Webster in your seminar that you ran with them at Learn Physio. So that was a, that was that a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. And that's recorded. And so how do people access that other way? Is that, um, yeah. is that free oh, so or is it's, it? It's free, absolutely free access to that. And it's a wonderful one hour interview with both Julian and Kate. And they spoke, they speak so well in terms mm. of you know, how you can reduce the risk of second ACL injuries and, and what the current state of play is. They, they both have done great work there. Um, they, what were some really, um, sorry, Mick, what, what were some really yeah. interesting um, points that you took away from that presentation? You were about to tell me anyway. From, <laughs> yeah, no, no, the big one for me was um, certainly the, the, the emerging work from Kate Webster and the psychological readiness. I think for a while now we've been focusing largely on uh, quad strength, hamstring strength, quad to hammy ratio, uh, hot testing, time. We've also we've sort of really been largely focusing on those things as uh, determinants of readiness to return to sport following ACL reconstruction. Kate Webster's done amazing work for about 15 or 20 years in psychological readiness, and it's only now started to really sort of come. All her hard years of work are now starting to come. And the big thing that I took away from her is that her questionnaire that she developed a while ago, the ACL RSI, which really highlights psychological readiness and confidence to return back to sport after ACL reconstruction. There's some really, it's a really valuable research, research, oh, sorry, yeah, research uh, tool, but also too, as a clinician, it's a very important patient reported outcome measure that should be handed to our patients as well during rehab to see where their mental readiness is. Because you know, fear and confidence very closely linked to future ACL injuries. And we know higher scores on the ACL RSI index are associated with less chance of an ACL injury into the future. Um, that was one big thing I took away from um, Kate's uh, interview. Um, from Julian, he was just uh, really um, clear and concise about, you know, the key, the key things that uh, are really important to, so Julian's got a bit of a, you know, an algorithm to, to say when someone, when is someone ready to, to return back to sport? And he's got a very clear system that he follows and you can see that in the interview, he spelled it out quite nicely. But I really loved his, his final message was that it was more so in line with not necessarily re when is someone return, ready to return back to sport? It's when is, we need to listen to the, to the knee and if a knee that's swollen, and is constantly swelling, that's so problematic to the person, not just now, but into the future. So I actually probably took more, more out of that part of the conversation in that we need to respect the knee that's swelling. Um, and if, a, if the knee is continually swelling on the back of rehab and you're trying to run on a swollen knee and you're trying to train on a swollen knee, that's, that's, a, that's a time bomb waiting to happen as well. Um, if we're looking at risk of re-injury, not only just acutely with a, a new ACL rupture, we're actually risking a lot of long-term knee health um, by continually to jump and run on a knee that's continuing to swell. 
And that's going to be a far, far bigger problem 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the track than the immediate chances of that person rupturing their graph. Um, so, yeah, that, that was some really big, strong messages I took out of that. But that can be found up on learn.physio. Uh, click on the, uh, the banner uh, uh, journal club and you'll see insights. Um, you'll see a link to learn.physio insights and it, it'll be there on that page there. And you can watch that freely, freely available. Ready Excellent resource. For oh, it's, it was Fantastic. wonderful. I've gone back again to listen to it again because it was so good. If you um, so look, a question that we could ask for a researcher, but let's ask you because you've got so many good ideas and um, your finger on the pulse of a lot of research. So you've got a hundred million dollars, and um, you can give it to researchers; they can do the research for you. Yeah, hundred million dollars to spend on ACL research. Where would you start? What would you focus on? Uh, I, I think I'd try to identify first try to identify probably a bit better uh, those that could cope better without surgery. I think that would be the, the first one. I'm just seeing this. I unfortunately see a lot of people who would ordinarily be probably a, without knowing them too much beforehand, but just given their age and what they currently do and whatever they were going to do anyway, I feel like a lot of these people probably didn't need to have surgery to begin with. And if we could have a better, we do have a screening process at the moment with the COPA, potential COPA screening algorithm. I think, I think that's okay. I think we probably need some better, maybe an update to that algorithm in the, in the future, maybe having a revisit of that work and seeing if there's anything better that we could be doing now. But I, I think we need to probably have a look at how can we better stream people into who absolutely need an ACL reconstruction and, and who should be then you know, non-operatively operated? I don't, I, don't, I don't have the answer about a research design or anything like that, but I think trying to understand a little bit more uh, maybe some personal qualities or some strength profiles or, you know, we need to probably identify a little bit better those that, could avoid surgery to begin with altogether. I think that would take a hell of a lot of a burden off the health system. Um, so that would be probably one key project. If I had a lot of money to, to, to delve into it, I'd probably come up with a really good research team to answer that question. Um, secondly, I, uh, yeah, look, I, I think it would be great to probably find out ideally what would be the key. I know we're probably starting to understand that a little bit better, but try to understand um, probably the, the key components to, to successful post-op ACL reconstruction. I think we've probably got a good grasp of it, but the problem is there's, there's probably about 20 different great things that you could choose from, you know, when it comes to ACL reconstruction, rehab. Um, and it's trying to sort of prioritise that into people's lives. I feel like that's where for a lot of people, ACL reconstruction rehab is quite hard because it's so time consuming. And to make it more, uh, I guess, uh, compliant, I know compliance is not a great word because it's sort of been, you know, it assumes that we're trying to force people into it. But I think ACL reconstruction rehab needs to be able to be made to be done easier and, and, and in a way that's more time efficient and more likely to be done rather than a complex, complicated program 
that just doesn't get done because it's too hard to do. <laughs> um, and I'll find that that's often a, a huge barrier to people. Like I, I'm meeting a lot of people these days who are six months into their ACL rehab who are really struggling. And when I look at what they're doing, it's like, oh, gosh, you, you just, you, you're doing all these really hard things and you don't know where to fit and prioritise what's important to you in each and every week. Um, and, and you're actually missing out on a very important exercise here. And often it's missing the quads. They're focusing a lot of time on the balance and they're focusing a lot of time on the control and the coordination and the stability or they're working hard on their hamstrings. But when you're looking at their program, their quads are withering away and it's having a tremendous knock-on effect to their overall function and they're missing out on some really important stuff. So I think moving into the future, it'd be lovely to sort of have, have a better idea of what are the really high-quality, high-value exercises that just need to be done as a non-negotiable. And then whatever else gets done is an absolute bonus. I think that would be really, really nice. <laughs> um, and, and the third one, if I could get sneaking the third one, I'd want more research on open chain exercises. And I want to have a deeper look at open chain exercises and really put this whole debate to bed as to how safe are they, how unsafe are they, are they that really, you know, are they a huge issue um, that people are making it out to be or... You know, we're starting to understand they are probably a lot safer than what they've ever been reported. Um, but I'd probably want a bit more firm data on that at the moment. The research in that space is actually quite flimsy and, and only, you know, probably probably a dozen papers that are looking at it compared to all the other ACL papers out there looking at open chain. I'm oh, sorry, all the other papers out there looking at ACL reconstruction. There's actually not too many papers out there looking at open chain versus closed chain. They're putting them head to head in high quality studies. Um, well, really your point truly... number three there really addresses will help address point number two because if you can get you know change practice related to perhaps people's fear of loading the quads yep. then yep. it'll have a knock-on effect for their function and that's three very good answers i thought i was putting uh, you on the spot i think uh, you might have done no, this before they're, they're the things that keep me awake at night um <laughs> <laughs> no, but i think they're, they're the ones that really will make a difference in the future and you know i think sometimes people come to see me for a second opinion expecting something fancy and they walk out with an extension um, and they probably get a bit disappointed, but I, I know when they come back a month later, they're generally a far, a far lot better off than what they came in a month easier, earlier, just simply by doing some isolated quad work. There can be a lot behind a, a simple exercise can have a lot behind yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we better wrap things up. Um, where can people go to find out more about these topics? Uh, we've in the previous episode, I mentioned all the various. Um, social yeah. channels you're on. Give us a bit of a summary where we can yeah, read so, more about uh, this. Instagram is probably the easiest place to find me and some of my posts, and that uh, handle is mickhughes.physio. That's also the same handle for Facebook if you're there. Uh, YouTube, I've got a whole heap of videos there up on YouTube at uh, mickhughes.physio as well. Um, I've, I've got a website called mickhughes.physio, funnily enough. Um, so that's got that houses a lot of my blogs that I've written in the past. Uh, learn.physio has got a whole lot of free resources there including uh, research reviews that I've recently done all our paid courses all our free webinars that we've done as well so lots of free content there as well as the paid stuff um, but they're probably the main sources of information there and the uh, handles say dot .physio in them but they're really relevant for all clinicians yeah. and lots of oh, patients absolutely. as well yeah yeah 100% um, so yeah anyone that's got an interest in ACLs that's listening uh, there's plenty of uh, content there up on mickhughes.physio or learn.physio learn good on you Mick we really appreciate your time and expertise and thanks for coming on for a chat 
Yeah, speak to you soon. Any time. If there's anything more you want to talk about about ACLs, I'll be I'll be first back on that. That sounds excellent. See you, Mick. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, Luke. Cheers.